Warning to any listeners, this episode will include descriptions that some people may find distressing. Police officers and journalists returned once again to Capgrave Crescent in July 2017. They were spending yet another day on a Brislington estate conducting inquiries into a murder which had taken place four years before. They were searching for something or someone that might be able to tell them what had gone wrong with the system. A system that had allowed the brutal killing of an innocent and vulnerable man at the hands of his neighbours while others watched on in horror and the authorities did nothing to save him. This is the unbelievable story of how refugee Bijan Ibrahimi was beaten to death by his neighbours and dragged to the common outside his home where they set fire to his body after wrongly accusing him of being a paedophile. Welcome to episode 5 of Unbelievable, a true crime podcast where each week I'll be taking you through the stories of some of the most disturbing crimes committed in the UK. They are often horrific, sometimes baffling, but always unbelievable. To explain each case, I'll be using reports from the police, the media, the trials, and statements from family, friends, and those involved. This week, we have also spoken to journalist Tristan Cork from the Bristol Post, who reported on the aftermath of this case. You'll be hearing from him throughout the episode. It's important to note here that these stories are 100% true. Bijan Ibrahimi was an Iranian refugee who had moved to the UK in 2001, where he began living in an area called Bedminster in Bristol, a city in the southwest of England. Bijan, known as Ben locally, was a single man who kept to himself. He had some mild learning difficulties, and his differences meant that neighbours began to view him with suspicion. He suffered some antisocial behaviour against him, which meant he was eventually moved. Council officers placed him in an estate in the Broomhill area of Brislington, another community in South Bristol, which was further outside the city centre. There he lived on the ground floor flat at number 88 Capgrave Crescent. My name's Tristan Cork. I'm a senior reporter at Bristol Live. Capgrave Crescent, obviously it's a Crescent Road. Where he lived, in fact, was a block of flats in an L shape and they are maisonettes on top of each other. So it's four stories, two, two stories to a maisonette. It's in Broomhill. When you're out there, it really does feel like you're on the edge of the city in a kind of, both in a physical sense, but also in a the, the sense of place you have about it is it feels on the margins. You know, it's quite hard to get to. There's, there's like one bus and it's at the end of the bus route. And when you're there, it feels like you're a long way from the rest of Bristol. Over the months and years of Bijan living at that address, he was subjected to all manner of harassment, confrontation, criminal damage and general antisocial behaviour from families and their children who lived in the estate. He would often ring Avon and Somerset Police, the local police force, to complain or make reports. Officers would occasionally come out to see him, but mostly nothing was done. 
Two of his neighbours were known for being particularly prolific in giving Bijan a hard time. Lee James lived a few doors down at number 82 with his partner and his three children. Stephen Norley, a friend of Lee's, lived at number 84. Each of their flats had doors at ground level and looked out onto a piece of communal open ground. By 2013, when Bijan was 44 years old, tensions had worsened on the estate. He was having near-constant disputes with some of his neighbours. Some complained of him taking photographs or videoing them while they were in the open area outside the flat. They accused him of filming their children, although he had tried to explain that he was just gathering evidence of the antisocial behaviour that was taking place on the street. On Thursday the 11th of July 2013, Bijan went outside to his garden to water his plants. Lee James saw him and came over to confront him. He was angry and accused him of using gardening as an excuse to look at the neighbourhood children. He started shouting and barged his way into Bijan's flat and threatened him. Bijan filmed some of the exchange. Images from that confrontation show Lee James inside Bijan's doorway, wearing a black tank top and holding a can of lager and a cigarette, which he waved around while he was yelling, acting aggressively towards Bijan, who was on his own. Lee was eventually pulled away by his partner, who can be heard in the video shouting at him. Fearing for his safety, Bijan called the police. In the meantime, Lee James had spoken to a PCSO, a police community support officer, who happened to be close by at the time. He told the officer that he thought Bijan was looking at his children. And if the police did not deal with it, then he would. Lee James said he was not scared of being arrested or sent to prison and warned the officer again that he might take matters into his own hands. Lee was warned against this and later two police officers arrived on the scene to make inquiries. After speaking to Bijan and those on the estate, the police officers went back to the station where they made some investigations. But then they decided to return to Capgrave Crescent. Even as the police officers pulled up on the estate, they saw Lee James acting highly aggressively. He was shouting about protecting his kids and saying the police wouldn't do anything anyway. People nearby heard Lee threaten to kill Bichon, while Stephen Norley attempted to calm him down. It was at that moment that the officers decided against taking Lee into custody and arrested Bichon instead. They said they were arresting him for his own safety but watching Bijan being led away only served to fuel the accusation that he was a paedophile. Some of the neighbours cheered when they saw him being led from his home in handcuffs. The housing officers and the police, when, when he, was, he presented them with complaints that he was the victim of harassment from his neighbours and antisocial behaviour from his neighbours and, and you know, they would intimidate him. And when he presented that to them, their advice in part was document it. So he had a camera with him to be, you know, because he thought, I need to get evidence. They, You know, if they don't believe me, I need to film this happening to me or photograph it. 
So he would often take photos if the local residents or children or whatever outside whatever they did, chuck stones at his windows or knock on his door and run away, whatever it would be, that kind of low-level but intensely annoying antisocial behaviour. His defence or his, his, his means of dealing with that was to take pictures. And what that meant was that in the eyes of the bullies, that was further evidence. He had this kind of reputation. There were whispers about him all the time that were false. And when he would go out, he would take a photo they would be like, what are you taking pictures of my kids for? And that was one of the triggers. And this interview, um, one of the things that Lee James said was, you know, he was taking photos of my kids. He took that as being a kind of confrontational thing to do. That belief and that kind of rumour was absolutely exacerbated and, you know, in the eyes of the local residents, confirmed when the police turned up and actually took Bijan away rather than the people who were bullying him. So when they did that, amidst complaints that, you know, that he's a he's taking pictures of my kids, he's a he's a paedophile, he's a you know, snooper or whatever, when they took him away, in the eyes of the people who lived there, certainly in the eyes of Lee James, that was proof that the police were on their side. They were on their side. Police were on their side because he was a problem. At the police station Bijan begged the police to listen to him, but they wouldn't. A female officer was videoed telling Bijan that he was being arrested for a public order offence, for antagonising the situation. We've asked you not to do things like take pictures before, she says. Officers had in fact recommended to Bijan that he take photos to document any antisocial behaviour he claimed was being directed at him. While in the cell, Bijan tried to talk to the officer again, but she said, I don't want to talk to you. I'm a police officer and you're a pain in the arse. By the next morning, Friday the 12th of July, the police had seen the video Bijan had taken of Lee and were satisfied that Bijan had not committed any offence. He was released and went home and during the course of that evening made several increasingly frantic calls to the police, reporting the continuing hostility of his neighbours and asking for their help. In the early hours of the next morning, on Saturday 13th of July, Bijan emailed the beat manager to say that he was being called nasty things and that he did not feel safe in his home. During the course of that day and into the afternoon, a growing group of people, which included Lee and his friend Stephen, gathered in the communal area outside the flats. They were drinking a lot, and had become increasingly noisy and aggressive. They were shouting abusive remarks towards Bijan, who just stayed inside his flat the whole day. The main remark they kept repeating was that Bijan was a paedophile. But this was not true. Bijan had never been suspected of being a paedophile by any authority, and had never attempted to or harmed any children. Over the weekend, Bijan rang the police a total of 20 times in distress and told them he thought he was going to be killed. In his last call for help, officers mocked him and dismissed his pleas. It is unclear exactly what happened next. Lee James later told police that he had been about to go inside when he saw Bijan leave his house. Lee claimed that he heard Bijan say something about his daughter, which made him angry. What authorities believe is more likely 
is that Bijan left his property to water his plants when he finally thought the coast was clear. Lee had still been lingering outside and decided to pick a fight with Bijan, having already told his partner to go inside and lock the door. Lee then viciously attacked Bijan, and when he fell to the ground, Lee continued to repeatedly punch and kick Bijan in the head. He was also seen stamping on Bijan's head, again and again. Neighbours heard Lee shouting, I'm going to kill you, and have some of that. Stephen Norley, Lee's friend, had also been nearby, and although he didn't take part in the physical assault, he only intervened once to stop Lee from continuing to kick Bijan in the head. Stephen then helped Lee drag Bijan's body into the street and onto a grassy common opposite the flats. They got some white spirit and they poured it over Bijan before setting him alight. Leaving him to burn, they ran inside their homes where they undressed and tried to get rid of the blood-spattered clothes and any incriminating evidence. There at home, Lee told his girlfriend, We sorted him out. We took care of things. Police never responded to the calls Bijan made to them, and paramedics arrived at 1.36am on the morning of Sunday the 14th of July. Bijan's body was still burning, and the fire had to be put out with a fire extinguisher. Lee James was arrested soon after, and pleaded guilty to murder. Both Lee and Stephen were taken to the station. Stephen would not comment when asked questions by the police, but eventually pleaded guilty to assisting an offender. Lee James had a criminal record, but only for minor offences, while Stephen had no police record at all and was described as a hard-working family man. Despite his violent crime, Lee told police officers that he believed his children would be proud of what he had done. In November that year, Lee James and Stephen Norley were tried at Bristol Crown Court for their crimes. During the trial, jurors were shown the video footage of Lee James harassing Bijan at his home. They were also shown video footage and recordings which documented the way police officers treated Bijan, particularly in the three days prior to his death. It was explained to them that all the pictures on Bijan's camera had been viewed, and although some had children in the shot, they were not the focus of the image. More often than not, they were of Lee James and other residents who were taking part in antisocial behaviour. The jury found both Lee and Stephen guilty of their charges. And before sentencing, the judge in the case, Mr Justice Simon, gave his final remarks. The circumstances of the murder of Bijan Ibrahimi and the subsequent burning of his body are deeply shocking, he said. While I make it clear that the quality of decisions of the police, either in relation to the arrest of Mr Ibrahimi, his release, or the response to his request for help, it is not a matter for this court. Although, I am concerned with your acts and your culpability for what occurred. When sentencing Lee James, he said, First you had been threatening to use violence in the days before you murdered Mr Ibrahimi. Your persistent animosity and threats to kill him were noted by witnesses. I am satisfied that this was a vigilante crime, with the element of bullying and victimisation that this implies. You had decided, wrongly, that Mr Ibrahimi was a paedophile, 
and that this put him outside the law. You thought that you were entitled to take the law into your own hands, as the misleading expression has it. What you did had nothing to do with the law or justice. The law provides that guilt is decided in a court with the protections of a fair trial, and the law protects life. Yours was an act of murderous injustice. Then there was the destruction of the body. You told the police that you panicked and you were not thinking straight. But the burning of the body, so that the police officer, who had seen him only two days before, no longer recognised him, was a gratuitously abusive act, and has, not surprisingly, added to the great distress of his family. Justice Simon sentenced Lee James to life imprisonment, with a minimum sentence of 18 years before he can be considered for release. Stephen Norley was handed a four-year sentence for helping his friend burn Bijan's body. The fact Norley had come to commit such a crime was described as a mystery to all who knew him. Justice Simon said, Among the many references I have seen is one from your employer. He has spoken of his sense of sadness and shame that these crimes have brought on the city, but also describes you as the most grounded, stable, and honest person he has ever employed. The judge said Stephen was to serve half his prison sentence, minus any time he had served already in prison, and he was to remain on license for the remaining period of his sentence. After the verdict was read, Bijan's family addressed the press, and his sister read their statement outside the courthouse. We would like to thank the jury for all their hard work. We now look to the Chief Constable to dismiss Officers Duffy and Parsmore from the force with the immediate effect. Our search for justice for Bijan continues. 20 police officers and staff members, including inspectors and sergeants, are now to face disciplinary proceedings. This includes disciplinary charges of race discrimination against four officers. We believe that the failure to protect Bijan's life arose because of the institutional racism. We look to the police and Bristol City Council to effect the systemic change needed to address this racism. We dedicate Bijan's life to all other victims of hate crime in the hope that their lives can be protected. We would like to thank the IPCC and the Crown Prosecution Service for all their hard work in bringing the important prosecution in this important prosecution. We also wish to thank Sari and Bob Murphy for all their support over the years. Another sister of Bijan's also spoke outside the courthouse, followed by the spokeswoman for Sari, stand against racism and equality. No sentence can ever bring our brother back and we, as a family, have a life sentence to bear. We hope that judges' votes today will send out a strong message to police officers across the country about the importance of protecting victims and importance of telling the truth. We hope that today's outcome will help other victims and our search for justice continues. From Sari's point of view, this case is not a triumph, it's a tragedy um, on so many counts. I think His Honour Judge Ford has sent out a really critical message today to policing and society. 
A modern-day police officer in today's diverse society must at all times behave with the utmost integrity. They must respond without prejudicial judgment, getting in the way. They must do everything possible to keep every single person safe. These officers have now faced enormous loss. This family has faced the utmost loss, and the cost to Bristol is immeasurable. Avon and Somerset Chief Constable Nick Gargan issued an apology after the tragedy, saying, Mr Ibrahimi was someone who deserved the protection of all of us. We are very sorry about what happened to him. On the day of Mr Ibrahimi's murder, we knew enough about the police response to convince us that we should make an immediate referral to the IPCC. It was then that the Independent Police Complaints Commission launched their investigation, interviewing a number of officers involved and looking at how events unfolded. The final report was published four years later in 2017, and it was incredibly damning of the force. Jan Williams, IPCC Commissioner, spoke about their findings. It resulted from seven years of contact between Mr Ebrahimi and members of the neighbourhood policing team, Mm. during which police failed completely to recognise that he was the victim here. And he was always identified as the perpetrator, even though in the seven years before his murder, he made 85 calls to Avon and Somerset, during the course of which he talked about being a victim, and he described himself as being a victim of race-hate crime. He reported criminal damage. He reported being frightened for his life. And yet every time his allegations were disbelieved, counter-allegations made by his neighbours were just accepted at face value, and he was labelled as a liar, a tension seeker, and it was very, very clear when the investigator went back over that seven-year period that what had happened during the weekend of the murder was a culmination of the approach to Mr Ebrahimi that had become a pattern over those previous seven years. We didn't investigate Avon and Somerset as an institution. That's the first thing to say. And the IPCC is an investigative body. It's not a determinative body in that sense. We don't reach final decisions. What was clear from the evidence was that Mr Ebrahimi was discriminated against consistently when compared with the way in which his neighbours were treated. He was always the one who was disbelieved. Their counter-allegations were always believed, even if there was no evidence. He was the one who was labelled as the liar, the perpetrator, the attention seeker. So there's no doubt he was discriminated against, and it was always to his detriment. And there was no evidence to indicate that it was with reasonable explanation. So the discrimination factor is clear. The motivation behind that discrimination is less clear to get to the bottom of. And of course, the judge and the panel in the misconduct proceedings didn't think the evidence pointed to discrimination on the grounds of race. Mr Ebrahimi always thought he was the victim of race-hate crime and his family, Ansari, are of the firm view he was. What I've tried to reflect in the foreword is... Yes, there were elements of the discrimination that you could say were biased against him because of his race. But what's overwhelmingly clear 
is that he was discriminated against because he was never identified as the repeat victim of hate crime and that he was a vulnerable man in need of protection and support. He never got that protection and support. And what is so distressing in reading and looking at what happened on the weekend of his murder, he rang Avon and Somerset Police 20 times that weekend. And he said that he was frightened for his life, that he thought he was going to be killed. And throughout that time, he was treated with disrespect. He was treated with contempt. His last call was just an hour before he was murdered. And he was dismissed and mocked in that call. And that's the saddest thing, because even after all his experience of being rebuffed, after all his experience of being disrespected, he still kept faith with the police. And that's the most saddest, poignant humbling thing for me of it all. Avon and Somerset had a number of opportunities that weekend to make different decisions and to react differently. They could have arrested Lee James, who of course is responsible for Mr Ebrahimi's murder. The panel in the misconduct hearing found there was no rational reason to arrest Mr Ebrahimi, so Lee James could have been arrested. The evident community tensions that were escalating in Capgrave Crescent should have been recognised and there should have been a unit put in to try and de-escalate that tension. And then Mr Ebrahimi should have been subject to a much more detailed risk assessment before he was released from custody and he could have been released to a different address. So the events of that weekend could have been avoided. And both the Police and Crime Commissioner and the Chief Constable accept and recognised that those events need not have happened. I'm assured from all the work that Avon and Somerset have done over the last two years that they've taken all their failings very, very seriously. They didn't ever try and shy away from the magnitude of their failure. And they have set about uh, an organisational learning approach, starting with the top, sending very clear messages to their officers and staff that discrimination in any form is not acceptable. They've got significant training programmes underway on recognising bias in all its forms and making sure that you can avoid bias. They've looked at cultures, they've looked at attitudes, they've looked at the whole approach to community policing. They've also worked very closely with their partners because whilst our investigations of necessity focused on Avon and Somerset Police, because we don't have jurisdiction over other bodies, it was very evident from the investigation that there were other organisations involved. And I recommended to Avon and Somerset that they share the report with all their partners because this approach to the management and protection and support of vulnerable people needs a multi-agency approach. So I am assured that they've taken on board the very serious failings and that they are taking a whole range of steps to put things right for the future. And I would pay tribute to Mr Ebrahimi's sisters here because they've shown remarkable dignity and forbearance throughout a very long process, but also 
they've been prepared to help in what needs to be done to put things right. And I pay tribute to them for that. That same year, Safer Bristol Partnership also published a report which found there had been a collective failure on the part of Bristol City Council and the police. They stated that both organisations suffered from institutional racism and repeatedly sided with Bijan's abusers. In response to the reports, Bijan's family said they were disgusted and shocked to hear that there was still cause to use the term institutional racism, two decades after it had been notoriously used to describe the Metropolitan Police's dealing with the death of Stephen Lawrence in London in 1999. Lots of people kind of can't get their heads around what institutional racism means in this particular context or any, in any context. We've seen other instances of controversy involving the police, particularly with something like the tasering of Ras Judah at Umbi in Easton a couple of years ago. The way to kind of look at it, I always think, is you can't imagine what happened to Bijan Ibrahimi happening to him if his name was Brian Abraham and he was from Knoll and he'd been moved to Brislington and he was a little, you know, he was a little bit of an old ball but harmless and people were ganging up on him. If the police had turned up there, they would have dealt with it differently. You can't imagine they would have done the same thing if he was a white man in his 60s walking in his dog in Clifton on a Saturday morning. In a sense, it's very difficult to kind of grasp as a, as a specific concept, but it's almost like if you want to know what institutional racism looks like, it looks like this. This is an outcome of being institutionally racist. Bijan's murder led to a number of police misconduct hearings. And on the 21st of December, 2015, Kevin Duffy, a police officer, and Andrew Passmore, a PCSO, were convicted of misconduct in public office. Both had been dismissed from the force on January the 22nd and were jailed the following year, Duffy for 10 months and Passmore for four. Duffy had refused to go and see Bijan, who said threats to kill were being made against him. Duffy told the operator, I've no intentions of taking any calls from Bijan Ibrahimi. I'll speak to him at my convenience. Duffy did tell 56-year-old Passmore to patrol Capgrave Crescent. Passmore claimed he had patrolled for an hour on foot and by car. But the prosecution said that, in fact, he had only driven up and down the road for two or three minutes. Duffy was described by his lawyers as a dedicated public serviceman who had lost his good character, his employment, and a significant financial sum for him and his family. He said, Duffy is a broken man and he will no longer work in the areas he has experience in. The public will be all the more poorer for that, he said. Duffy has spoken out on a number of occasions about how he feels he was made a scapegoat by his force and that he was wrongly convicted by the jury for his role in Bijan's death. The jury were wrong. I did not willfully misconduct myself. The jury found me guilty. That is the system. The system isn't perfect. And I will maintain that as long as I live. I'm sorry about the pain and hurt they've gone through. I'm sorry if they they've see that uh, Bijan did not get the care and attention that he needed. Understand that we can get it wrong, but it's not willful, it's not deliberate. Uh, and if we don't do something for someone, it's because we're trying to do our best for somebody else. 
Then, on May the 3rd, 2016, PCs Helen Harris and Leanne Winter were also dismissed from the force. While investigations were ongoing, police revisited Capgrave Crescent in the summer of 2017 in an attempt to jog people's memories about the incident. Fresh door-to-door inquiries were being made by the Independent Police Complaints Commissioner who were investigating how Bijan was treated by the police in the run-up to his death. Tammy Hearst, who had lived on the estate for the past four years, told a reporter that people were still cagey to talk because they felt guilty they had not done more to intervene. Nobody stepped in at the time, but they were adamant that he was a pervert. They should feel bad. They should feel very, very bad, she said. She told the Bristol Post how Ben, she called him, helped her move into her house, helping her move her sofa and TV when she first arrived, and how she began very quickly to be told by neighbours that he was a pervert and should stay away from him. She said, if there was hard evidence he touched children, then it would have been different, but he was innocent. She said not much had changed on the street, although it was now a lot more quiet. She said, to be honest, I don't think people are that affected by what happened. That same year, friends and relatives of Bijan's, as well as campaigners, gathered in the city centre to plant a tree in his memory. Together in Queen Square, Bijan's sister, Maniza Moors and Morjgan Kayatian, said they want the tree to leave a lasting legacy for their brother and act as a reminder of the lessons his murder brought to the city. Bijan was tragically taken from us nearly four years ago, and we want Bristol to never forget him or the lessons that his murder brings to all, they said. This tree will stand for many years, and we hope it will be just one of many of the legacies we can leave on behalf of our dear brother. Though we can never get him back, We intend that the brutal end he suffered for simply wanting a peaceful life will not have been in vain. Bijan Ibrahimi had done nothing wrong. And effectively, what he had done wrong in the eyes of the police was be someone who completely didn't just shut up and take the abuse he was getting. His main fault was to trust in the police and ask them to do something. And that was a real eye-opener for me, that that would happen. Thank you for listening to another episode of Unbelievable. Please take a second to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, share with your friends and follow us on social media. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Bronwyn Weatherby, and please join us next week when we'll have another unbelievable story to tell you. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.